Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman. And today I'm talking with Jen Trepek, who has her own podcast and who's also a health and wellness coach in New York. In today's episode, we talk all about willpower and whether or not willpower is a helpful concept when you want to cut sugar. We'll get to our chat in just a minute. But first, I just wanted to tell you that if you're looking for some free resources about cutting sugar and also about cravings and how to get rid of them, then download my five tips for getting rid of cravings, especially if you're an intermittent faster and you realize that sugar's getting in the way of making your intermittent fasting lifestyle easy and natural, go to aftersugarclub.com and download your five tips for getting rid of cravings there. And while you're there on the website at aftersugarclub.com, you can also get your simple guide to getting more energy with less sugar. That's aftersugarclub.com and click on Simple Guide in the top menu. You can also get lots of free resources on the Life After Sugar Facebook page and you can get more free resources and tips on the Life After Sugar YouTube channel and come and subscribe to my Instagram account at mylifeaftersugar. That's where I post pictures of what I eat, what I do, sometimes some inspiring quotes or sometimes just pictures of our cat so that you can see that it's totally possible to live a fun and active life, even if you don't eat sugar. All right, let's get to my chat with Jen. So today I'm talking with Jen Trepek, who has her own podcast called Salad with a Side of Fries. Love that title. And um, Jen, you're a health coach. You specialize in weight management. But what I'd like you to tell us first is how you ate before you became a health coach and what did you eat when you were a child? Yeah. So it's funny when I was a kid, well, first of all, I I sort of joke that I was the skinny one in a family of dieters. So really what that meant is that I was on a diet my whole life, whether I realized it or not. Um, so I ate lots of vegetables as a kid. Um, you know, I also ate a lot of bread and chips and pasta and all the things. I mean, our house growing up was the house that had all the things everybody else's parents wouldn't buy them. And um, we had a separate refrigerator that was filled only with soda, every flavor under the sun. Is that an Um, American thing? I don't know. It was an our house thing. My friend's parents didn't have it, you know? (laughs) I've never heard Um, of such a thing. Amazing. Yeah. But we also had, um, you know, we had 
every diet fad in our house. You know, we did the fat-free thing, the sugar-free thing, the low-carb thing, the no-carb thing. You know, at the time it was Atkins and then, you know, everything out there. Um, I really started to gain weight between high school and college, right? So I stopped dancing. Uh, A lot of things shifted in terms of, you know, where my food was coming from or what was happening. And so when I started to gain weight, I was like, well, all right, I don't know what to do because I watched my family do this my whole life, right? And that's when I tried every diet under the sun. So do you consider that when you were growing up, you weren't trying every diet under the sun? And then when you started putting on weight, you did start different diets? Well, there's a piece of intention behind that, right? So it was, you know, between high school and college is when I was intentional about it. But growing up, because my dad was on a diet, that's what we were eating. That's what there was in the house. You know, there were times I would come home after school and eat a snack from Jenny Craig because that's what was in the pantry. Um, And it seemed like it looked good. So I was like, you know, hey, can I eat this? You know, and he would be like, fine, whatever, you know. (laughs) So, you know, while I ate nutritiously as a child, it was influenced, even though I didn't realize it, right? It was influenced by whatever diet, you know, was the fat of the month, year, week, whatever. (laughs) And was it your parents following the diet or was it the kids in your family as well? It was my dad uh, mostly, but we didn't have separate meals. Right. So whatever somebody was eating, unless it was like a Jenny Craig packaged meal. Um, but we had one meal that everybody was eating or there was food in the fridge, you yeah. know, and that's what we were picking from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're the kid. You eat what your parents right. give you. So um, was there any kind of accepted belief about why your dad had weight to lose in the first place? Did anyone talk about, was it all about calories? Like he was eating too many calories? Well, so, I mean, my awareness of what it was is a little, you know, I have no idea because I was the kid, right? The conversations he had with his doctors, I don't know. What I know is that there was a picture of a man's torso with a belly that looked different than my dad's on his mirror in his bathroom and taped to our refrigerator. And that was like his goal body. Right. Huh. Right. You know, it was whatever the diet was, right? Which a lot of times was eat less fat, eat, you know, these leaner choices or, you know, whatever it is. It was sort of just baked into what the options were in the house and what we were eating. So I don't necessarily know what the conversations were. I do know as I got older, um, there were conversations about cholesterol challenges and things like that. Um, But I don't really know what the conversation was, you know, as far as why for my dad, there were pounds to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds very common, you know, for kids and even for young, young adults and some of us way into adulthood is it sort of permeates our lives, but we don't question it or, um, 
even educate ourselves about why so many people have so much weight to lose it just becomes normal well well there's a few pieces i mean now knowing what i know and doing the work that i do i mean i have a kids and family program that i teach because the way we talk about these things as adults and the way we want to talk about this with a teenager or a child are very different and part of it is just inherently that our parents didn't have this information. How could we expect them to teach us something they didn't know, right? It, especially in the U.S., there was this, the food pyramid that we grew up on had grains at the bottom, right? Yep. I mean, we were taught that this is what we're supposed to eat. The truth is mm -hmm. that whole food pyramid is about economics, not biology, not nutrition, right? So it was, what do we grow in this country? You know, in the US, we grow corn and wheat and now soy, right? Yeah. Um, but it was about getting us to grow or to eat what we grow, not nutrition. So one of the things I teach my clients now, you know, grains is not a food group. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> right? By way of nutrient density, it's actually pretty inefficient. Yeah, and even right. counterproductive, I would say. Yes. So, so you grew up with the the sort of the what I call the diet mentality, as you say, no pun intended, but baked into your family culture. Mm -hmm. And then you did dancing, right? Mm -hmm. And you said that when you stopped doing dancing, you started to put on weight. Is that right? Yeah. And it was a combination of things, right? It was a complete shift in my lifestyle and routines and habits and what I was eating and when I was eating and, you know, going to college from high school, right? Eating in a dorm. I remember once, I, I suppose our dorm was very progressive. They had the calorie count on foods oh. at the, you know, wow. in the cafeteria. And I remember there was broccoli and it had like 1200 calories. And I was what? like, what did they do to the broccoli? <laughs> you know, like, I don't even understand. So, you know, there were just a lot of pieces at play that were such a big change, yeah. um, you know, and then it was like, okay, how do I figure this part out? You know, that was the first time between high school and college was the first time I ever had to make an effort to get some activity. Right. Right. And, you know. that, that, and it seems that it was revolving around calories, but the whole sort of weight. It depends. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you know, I teach everybody now, right? It's calories in, calories out is one of the biggest misconceptions. And that's not actually how the body works. But, you know, like I said, it wasn't necessarily always about calories. It was more about what the fad diet was. So if it was sugar-free, fat-free, like we ran through all of them. Okay. You know, oh. Atkins for a while or whatever it was, you know. Okay. So at what point did you actually get some, I don't know, I call it biologically accurate education? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. So I would say it was, hold on, I can tell you, it was probably around 2006, 2007. How because by late then? 2007, uh, in my mid-20s, early to mid twenties. Uh, so I had graduated from college, moved to New York, and I was still on this roller coaster, you know, of gaining and losing and trying to, you know, in air quotes, figure this out. Right. 
Um, and I learned about the program that I now teach. And at first I was like, no, 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 that's okay. I don't need whatever you have, <laughs> you know, I, I know what I'm doing, uh-huh. right. What I'm doing was this craziness, but I didn't need whatever they yeah. had. Uh-huh. Um, but I saw people who were following the program and two things struck me. One was that they were keeping the weight off. Hmm. And the second piece was this one woman in particular. And I say this every time I tell the story, if you are out there and this is you, like, please tell me, I have no idea who this woman is. And I hope to find her, right? She's telling the story of uh, losing like 150 pounds. And I'm looking at her and keeping that off by the way, but I'm looking at her and I can't see where 10 pounds could have been on this woman's body. And she's telling me that the equivalent of like another human was attached to her. Yeah. Right. And I remember having a moment with myself of like, Jennifer, right? Not even Jen. This was like Jennifer. (laughs) They know some, right. They know something you don't know because what you're seeing does not compute. That requires of you, in my opinion, a, a big dollop of intellectual humility. Sure. And and a big piece of recognizing that I wasn't where I wanted to be and that maybe there's something else, right? And again, like I said, this wasn't the first time I had, you know, heard about this or whatever it was, but in that moment, I was ready. What had you studied at college? Tell me, what did you graduate? Business, in? business okay. and marketing. Okay. So not nutrition yeah. at all. no. Not at all. And that really came after all of this. So I had that moment with myself. I followed the program and worked with a coach. I really call it the nutrition education we're all supposed to know and no one ever taught us. So I was like, everybody needs this. Everybody deserves this. And I really set out on a mission to pay it forward and help people help themselves with this information. And I became an insatiable student right? Digging deeper into what I was learning and then trying to understand why isn't this what we learned in childhood, right? Why isn't this what we learned instead of that crazy food pyramid or whatever it is? And I really, I read every book I could get my hands on, went to every seminar and workshop. And I did all these trainings where like, if I was a doctor, I would get continuing medical education credits, but I'm not. So I didn't, but you know, and then I was working with clients. So I started working with clients late 2007 on the side of my full-time job. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, I was so passionate about it and was so also like so irritated too that this isn't what we were taught. And the other piece for me is that everything became infinitely easier when I learned this, it wasn't like this battle. I wasn't fighting my body anymore. It's it's amazing, really, because we think, can it really be this simple? And it's like, yeah, it can actually. And you don't even have to have a PhD in nutrition to right. get it. <laughs> Neither of us right. have that. And most people don't either. And I don't think you need one. You know, all my respect goes to everyone who has a PhD. <laughs> but sure. I don't think we need a PhD in nutrition or human biology to get how simple this is. Well, the other side of it too, and this is sort of... Uh, a can of worms, maybe a conversation for a different day, but depending on where you went to school or what you studied, 
most of the programs in the US for nutrition and dietetics and, all these, and a lot of these programs are sponsored by the packaged food companies. Yeah, yeah, great and irony. The, and the, and the um, information they're teaching tends to be, uh, in my experience and observation, pretty outdated, um, very targeted toward disease states uh, versus, you know, as opposed to optimal health. And, you know, there's something to be said for those who have, you know, made the effort for, you know, different approaches in nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with you there. So, so you got all this information about a, how off it we were before, right. And all the info yep. that you got from being a child and into your early twenties, completely wrong. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's difficult to realize, oh, wait, we're being told the wrong information. How can you trust the right information after that? Well, that's a great question because I see it all the time. You know, with today, it's, you know, well, I see this on Instagram, right? I trust other things this person says or whatever, you know, I think there's a few pieces to that. One is evaluating what we hear with a foundational understanding of what we already know. So to say, right, you know, like I sort of joke one day, the news tells us, you know, broccoli is the be all end all, the greatest food on the planet. And tomorrow broccoli causes cancer, right? <laughs> so how do we even recognize, you know, and reconcile these two pieces, you know, and one of those things is to say, well, given what I know, what would need to exist for that to be true? Or, hey, this actually makes a lot of sense to me. Given what I know, both from maybe what I've learned already and or what I know about how my body best responds, I do want to give this a try or I don't want to give this a try. Yeah. And I think that's really a a big piece of this is not to forget that you know your body best. And oftentimes when we're following all the rules and all the things and all the programs that are out there, what we do is teach ourselves out of paying attention to our own bodies. Yes. I think the diet culture has a lot to answer for on that score. Yeah. For sure. Yes. Cause I mean, I never listened to my body other than my body needs and wants chocolate. That was as far as I went. Right. Or we're told that if we listen to our body, you know, it's going to be a downward spiral that our body is sending us, you know, all the quote unquote wrong signals, you know, and that's actually not the case at all. It's about learning to understand those signals, right? Understanding when we're craving sugar, what does that actually mean that we need? Yeah. Yes. Why is it that our body craves sugar in certain situations and how do we interpret that to give our body what it's really looking for? Right. Absolutely. And sometimes it's not even food that the body's looking for. Right. So this brings us to the whole notion of willpower. And when we're craving like this and we still haven't developed the skill of really interpreting what the signals are from our body, then what I come across is so many people saying, 
I don't have your willpower, Netta. I can't, you know, I can't stand the cravings. How do you do it? I just want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so happy you've discovered this podcast and I hope that it will inspire you to take one more step towards your life after sugar. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast. Just scroll down, tap on the stars to rate it and click on write a review to write your review. And if you can share this podcast with others who you think could also benefit from the inspiring stories on this podcast, then please do share it because the more people that know about life after sugar, the more people we can help. Thank you. You know, and I I haven't had to stand cravings for over seven years because it's not a question of A, willpower, and B, standing anything. Can you speak with your expertise about this whole concept of willpower? Yeah, so, you know, it's a big topic. We'll sort of take it piece by piece. I mean, the thing, I think by definition, right, we want to think about what is willpower, right? Willpower, I think of it as really just self-control right? Managing ourselves. And it's not that we don't have willpower. It's that we, willpower is a finite resource in the body. It's actually very chemical. Okay. And everything in our lives that requires choice and self-control uses that willpower. So I like to think of willpower as a cup right? It's a refillable cup, but it's a cup, right? So every morning we start with a full cup. Sleep helps replenish willpower, right? (laughs) So we start the day with a full cup, choosing what to wear, choosing what direction we're going to drive to work, right? Which route are we going to take? Sometimes, you know, we have very complex decisions to make when we're at work, All of these things drink from that willpower cup. Even you're driving down the street, you see a billboard for Dunkin' Donuts. Choosing not to eat Dunkin' Donuts in that moment drinks from your willpower cup. We're walking somewhere and we smell Subway. Recognizing, oh, I smell that, it's Subway, I'm not eating that. Subconsciously or consciously, I'm not eating that drinks from that cup of willpower. So it's not that we don't have willpower. It's that we end up using it in other places. And what's really interesting is that when our willpower cup is depleted, we crave sugar in an effort to refill it. Hmm. So there's what I often call, um, it's the catch 22 of willpower And they say weight loss. I don't like those words. I say weight management, but (laughs) you guys will see, I'm a stickler on the words like good, bad, right, wrong, not words you're going to hear from me. You're speaking to an English (laughs) teacher. I love words. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I did an episode called going against the textbook, 
It was all about the words we use in these conversations and all that. So you'll love that one. Anyway, the catch 22 with willpower and our weight is we often try to use our willpower to not eat, right? Because we've been told so often, eat less, move more, right? So we're trying to eat less. When we eat less, we have low blood sugar. You know what has to exist for us to have any willpower? Blood sugar. So in all of our efforts, right, to eat less, we're actually decreasing our willpower. Now we see that cookie and we're like, you know, skies parting, angels singing. There is nothing that looks better to us than that cookie for two reasons, right? One is when our blood sugar is low, our body is looking for energy and it's looking for energy quickly. Preferred fuel for the body is carbohydrates. And when our blood sugar is low, it's carbohydrates that will quickly absorb in the body to become energy, which is sugar. So it is chemical that you cannot resist that cookie. It is not a moral failing, right? Yeah, it's actually very chemical. No, but when we don't recognize that it's chemical, we think we have no willpower. Mm. When in fact, we have massive willpower. We've just used it elsewhere, (laughs) right? And with low blood sugar, it creates the craving for the sugar. And now we see the thing and it becomes, you know, it feels like climbing Mount Everest naked and barefoot. Yeah, to to resist. And and as far as I can tell from my own personal experience, at least, it's if we don't get the blood sugar drop, then, uh, and which is preceded by a blood sugar spike, you know, if we have- Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, for many people, if we have stable blood sugar, then we don't get into that situation of the cravings. Does that sound biologically accurate? Yes, and and there are other pieces to it too, right? I mean, if we wanna think about all of the pieces that contribute to sort of, or, or you know, more things that can drink from our willpower cup, stress drinks massively from our cup of willpower, right? Multitasking drinks from that cup of willpower. Um, you know, PMS can drink from that cup of willpower. Um, in fact, women have more willpower than men. Uh, men actually tend to have less willpower unless there's, you know, for women, there's a certain phase of our cycle where we have even less willpower. It's the luteal phase for anybody who's into that side of things. I know what that Um, is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I talked about sleep, right? Refilling our cups. So a lack of sleep, whether it's less sleep or less quality sleep means less self-control. An interesting one is even not keeping our commitments, not keeping our commitments to ourselves, not doing what we say we're going to do depletes our willpower. Well, it seems a little discouraging. And like you were saying, like a catch-22 situation, how do we step off that roundabout? Yeah. So the first piece, like we said, is to really understand that it's very chemical 
It's not your fault. You haven't done anything wrong. And then to know what replenishes your cup, what refills your cup. And there are a whole slew of things that can help refill our cup. And it's about, you know, maybe put these on a post-it, right? So that you have these reminders. And then in any given moment, you can give a couple a try. Two pieces to this. One is what worked today may not work tomorrow. Don't beat yourself up. It's all good, right? Two, we want to think how we can play offense rather than defense, So the other side of this is of all these things that replenish our cup, how can we build them into our day so that we're constantly refilling even as we're constantly using, right? So glucose is number one, eating quality nutrition at regular intervals to keep our blood sugar stable. So quality nutrition, if you're a note taker, write this down. Protein and fiber at every meal makes removing fat, no big deal. Oh, that's cute. Protein, right? <laughs> protein and fiber at every meal makes removing fat, no big deal. So protein is clean, lean protein. I don't care if you want that to be animal, plant, or something that we've never even discovered yet, right? But clean, lean protein. And fiber, oh, I would say, not protein powder. Correct. Correct. In certain situations, a protein powder might be your best option to get protein and fiber in that snack, but we don't want that to be the staple of our everyday nutrition. Um, And there are a lot of great protein powders out there. Um, So that's your protein. Fiber is vegetables and sometimes fruit. And then we also want quality fat. So avocado, avocado oil, uh, true extra virgin olive oil, your nuts, right? These are our quality fats. So having a meal, protein, fiber, quality fat, and snack, by the way, the only difference between meals and snacks is how much we have at a time, allows us to keep our blood sugar stable. So um, for me personally, and a lot of my listeners, we practice just naturally intermittent fasting. And so is that uh, the absence of snacks Um, And sometimes the absence of meals, I don't see it as an absence because I don't, you know, subscribe to the three meals a day paradigm anyway. So there's eating when you're hungry. Is that something that biologically can be just as valuable as meals and snacks and eating frequently? So it depends on what your fasting looks like. Um, As a General rule, I'm a bigger fan of fasting for men than women. Um, The other piece of that is if your fasting is a couple hours before bed to, you know, within an hour and a half of waking up in the morning, I am with you a thousand percent. If you have uh, challenges with sleep, you know, or things like that, you may want to time your food intake between sunrise and sunset. If you are expecting your body to function most of the day without fuel, we are setting ourselves up for a metabolic challenge. Okay. It's not been my experience, but I can see how it can be for some other people for sure. So 
And what about willpower? Because I'm coming back to the intermittent fasting yeah. thing, but just, you know, I don't want to hit that nail on the head that much. But yeah. um, what I found in my personal experience and, and other people that um, I talk to is that funnily enough, there is no willpower needed when, you know, we don't eat sugar and we're not so- bothered by cravings. <laughs> Yeah. So this is an interesting piece, right? The idea that the only thing we need willpower for is severe cravings is also not necessarily the case all the time, right? Certainly when we don't have the sugar, the cravings are dramatically different. Um, You know, there's also a piece of replenishing willpower. We talked about how not keeping our commitments to ourselves eats away at our willpower. So there's a piece of, if you commit to yourself that you're not eating, and you don't, it's keeping those commitments, it replenishes the willpower. So there's sort of a a psychological component to that uh, influence. Yeah, that. so what I hear is keeping the commitment to yourself, whatever it is, no sugar, fasting, whatever, um, is in and of itself helpful for willpower. Yes, but each of us are different. If that feels extra challenging to you, there's no need to feel pressured to do that, right? We have a lot of other tools in our tool belt to help replenish the willpower. So especially if you do feel cravings, keeping your blood sugar stable is likely going to be more beneficial for you in replenishing that willpower. And if I hear you right, for some people, keeping blood sugar stable is sort of frequent meals and snacks. And for others, it's fasting. Yeah, it's more about what we eat. Um, Because, you know, if you're eating, like you were talking about the spikes and the crashes, right? Quality nutrition eliminates those spikes and crashes. For sure. Yeah. And by quality nutrition... Um, I'm protein and fiber at every meal make sure you're moving fat no big deal I love the little poem that's what I wanted to, you to say it again <laughs> you know, I teach poetry <laughs> I oh no way and then one day I'll figure out how to get the fat thing in the sentence but yeah you know. too many syllables what right exactly it doesn't quite work the same way yeah but it's, it's a lovely jingle and um I found that yes it's the that's the reality for me as well that quality nutrition, which for me personally includes, or you know, just unprocessed foods, yep. which automatically excludes sugar, Correct. which is one of the most processed products. Correct. And for me, exactly. it also excludes flour, because as you were saying at the beginning, yeah, a grain-based diet. Gosh, yep. I mean, my digestion, first of all, is much better since I dropped grains. Yep. For sure. And that's also, you know, a whole other can of worms, uh, yeah. you know, modern wheat versus ancient wheat and, you know, right. glyphosate and all that good stuff. But um, back to the uh, willpower piece of other things that can refill our cup, right? So we talked about keeping our commitments. We talked about quality nutrition for stable blood sugar. Um, interesting accountability can refill our cup of willpower. So it's why we talk about, or you might hear people say, you know, sharing your data, declaring publicly 
that you're going to do something. There's accountability in that, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. And yeah. that, by the way, is the case whether it's a health-related goal or anything in life, right? When we declare it publicly, there's accountability. Definitely. Um, exercise and activity increases our stamina, allows us to hold out against temptation, even when we feel like our mental resources are depleted. There's a physical component to that. Yep, yep, that sounds like a lot of people's reality. As much being um, this downward spiral, you know, of lack of willpower and, de well, depleted willpower and then cravings and all the rest of it, yep. as much that as the positive spin of, hey, I hardly need willpower. It's not even on my radar, this whole notion of willpower, because I'm doing all the things that you just described where yep. my, my willpower is intact, as it were. Yep. Even interesting things, like some other things that maybe might seem silly that can actually help. Um, a to-do list. So getting things out of our head and onto paper, right? We talked about how multitasking can deplete our willpower. If we're trying to remember every single thing we have to do and everything that we don't want to forget, right? Like I have to book a flight. I have to, I keep reminding myself, oh, I haven't booked that flight yet. The more I try to keep that in my head, the less willpower I have when it comes to that cookie. And they seem really far apart in life but biochemically, they're really connected. So the more we can get things out of our head onto a piece of paper, right? We clear up mental capacity for self-control and self-discipline. Yeah. Um, distraction is surprisingly helpful for willpower. So there were studies, a lot of the studies on self-control um, it's like they did this one specifically with kids where it was like they give them a marshmallow and then say if you wait I can't remember if it was 10 minutes or 15 minutes but if you wait and don't eat the marshmallow in that time you'll get two when we come back right yeah the fact that they used a marshmallow never mind that this is a podcast about right. no sugar right <laughs> <laughs> exactly so the kids who were able to wait the 10 or 15 minutes distracted themselves. They looked around the room. They played with their shoelaces. They watched the clock. They did all of these other things except stare at the marshmallow. So how can we use that, right? Remove ourselves from the situation. Think about something else. Do a different activity, right? Distract ourselves from that thing that feels like it's, you know, commandeering all of our attention where we're trying to like white knuckle it, right? Yeah. It's quite counterintuitive um, to do that, isn't it? Exactly. Um, surprisingly, uh, charity and generosity improve our willpower. Hmm. So it's the... Um, the act of giving to charity or the act of generosity requires self-control because it requires that we overcome our biological, like natural animal selfishness. So an act of generosity is similar to what happens when we keep our commitments. It demonstrates 
to ourselves that we're capable. And this is totally subconscious, right? Like we don't have to think, oh, you know, I held the door open for somebody behind me. You know, I gave a tip to the barista at Starbucks. Yeah. Right. But they actually work. <laughs> um, so is it because those sorts of things take yourself out of this sort of me, myself and I thing? And exactly. they also give you a bit of a dopamine rush, don't they? Yep. Yeah, it can. I mean, not everybody is aware of that, but yes, exactly. Um, I think the most important piece in all of the research on willpower, self-control and discipline and all these things, the highest and best use of willpower is not waiting till we're staring at that cookie, right? The highest and best use of willpower is for creating habits. Because the more things become habitual, the less brain capacity they require. So if we use our willpower to set our clothes out in the morning so that our exercise is the first thing that happens in the day, if we use our willpower to ensure that our meals offer quality nutrition, if we use our willpower to make sure that I do a breathing exercise before I eat to help manage stress, inherently, not only will we be refilling that cup of willpower, we aren't going to use as much willpower and we'll have some left over when we are in that more challenging situation or, you know, in those more occasional occurrences. Yeah, that makes total sense, total sense. I know in, in the After Sugar Club community that I have, you know, I teach about automaticity and, and getting to a place, it's like learning another language. I always yep. make that, you know, that analogy because that's what I do is teach languages, but where before an, a habit becomes second nature, it will feel uncomfortable and weird and effortful before it becomes yeah. less. The thing that I give everybody is like a simple task, right? So Netta, when you're in the shower, do you wash your hair first or your body first? My hair. Every time, right? Pretty much. Next time you get in the shower, wash your body before your hair. Okay. See how uncomfortable that is. Experience that to something as inconsequential as the order that we do something in the shower. Yeah. Feels so, so weird. It's weird. And I think it just, it just helps, I think, to remind us that it is effortful and it is uncomfortable in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And that we should get comfy with that teeny, teeny bit of discomfort. I think we, I think most of us, you know, in the Western world live such comfortable lives that yep. we don't even know how to be uncomfortable. Or we run from it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a, a bit of work in the, um, aging well space. I don't like to call it anti-aging, but the aging well space. And aging is the pursuit of comfort. Hmm. If our mission is to feel comfortable all the time, 
it is aging. Hmm. Growth and life and energy is doing things even when it's a bit uncomfortable, right? And there's a difference between discomfort and pain, right? And there's a difference between the helpful pain and the hurtful pain, right? But it's about something to say to ourselves of like, why am, why am I resisting this discomfort? Is it short-term? Is it permanent? What else is going on? And sort of being willing to experience. And by the way, it also doesn't have to be so uncomfortable, right? Like even going back to that shower example, yeah, it might be like we get in the shower, we do the hair first again, and we're like, oh, I did my hair first again, right? So how could even something this inconsequential, how could I make it easier to remember? Oh, what if I put a post-it on my mirror that says, wash your body first? Hmm. What if I rearrange the soap and the shampoo in the shower so that that reminds me? Mm-hmm. And all of the tools and the little things that help remind us to do something in the shower in a different order are the same things that we can implement to help us do some of the other things. Maybe we reorganize our pantry so that the quality choices are right in front of our face and the things that we want to eat less often are much more difficult to access. Yeah. Maybe we, you know, implement what I call do this with kids in our family program is fridge first, right? Food is found in the fridge. If we're hungry, we find our food in the fridge, right? Which inherently leads us to the unprocessed, right? Quality nutrition, right? And even things like that, where it doesn't feel like we're trying to create, you know, all these things, but these small little rules, what we call red lines, can also inherently improve our willpower. Yeah, definitely. And make it actually less effortful in the long run. Yeah. And it makes me think of James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Yeah, that I'm sure you know. So these are wonderful, wonderful tips. And in and of themselves could be applied not just to cutting down on sugar, but to pretty much any habit that everything. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's a business career goal, something with your family or your health or whatever, it all applies because it's all self-discipline. Yeah. It's all that, you know, willpower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. That is amazing. Thank you. And I know the listeners for, for this podcast, including your own listeners, will be will take if only they take one or two tips that you just gave that can change their lives. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for, you know, having this conversation. And like you said, I mean, we talked about a lot. Pick one or two things. Start there. See what happens. Then listen again and pick the next thing that you want to, you know, give it a shot. And remember, like I said before, what works today may not work tomorrow, yeah. you know, and that's totally fine. It's all yeah. good. That's why we have a lot of options. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you, Jen, so much. Thank you. So there you go. If you ever thought that you don't have enough willpower to cut sugar or to live a sugar-free life, Well, I hope this podcast episode and my chat with Jen has helped you in seeing that you can't rely on willpower 
not because you're not strong enough, but because willpower has pretty much nothing to do with it. We need to look at changing our habits in a different way and drop the whole concept of willpower, mainly because it comes from the diet culture and makes us feel like failures, but also because chemically and neurologically, it actually has nothing to do with the decision to consciously change your habits. So thank you, Jen, and I'll put Jen's info in the show notes with this episode. And don't forget, if you're looking for some free resources to help you cut sugar and also look after your gut health and make your intermittent fasting lifestyle easy and natural and get rid of those cravings that are getting in the way, then head on over to aftersugarclub.com and download my five tips for getting rid of cravings and my simple guide to getting more energy with less sugar. And if you're ready to join the After Sugar Club community, which I created specially for health-conscious people and intermittent fasters, who don't just want to change what they eat, they want to transform their relationship with sugar and make it a peaceful relationship where you don't need or miss sugar anymore. Then head on over to aftersugarclub.com and click on the green button, join the club, to join us in the After Sugar Club private membership. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.